Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Coming at you from National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic Day 3 in Omaha, Nebraska after Daylight Savings Time, which means I'm <laughs> Daylight Savings Time ch- kicked in, so we um, uh, sprung forward an hour, and I'm on Red Bull number 4, and I don't normally drink Red Bull, <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm in good shape uh, for a, a fun day of Day 3 to kick off uh, uh, Day 3 of National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. I'm also keyed up because I'm I'm really excited to be talking with Christine Peterson who um I lined up to come to National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic on the public land stage and I'm a real big fan of Christine's work. Uh she's a professional journalist who's written for National Geographic, Trout Unlimited's Trout Magazine, Outdoor Life, High Country News, um, Casper Star Tribune, and many, many others, including Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's website. Uh, She's the president and board chair of the Outdoor Writers Association of America. Um, And she spoke um, all three days of National Pheasant Fest on the public lands stage and was the moderator of yesterday's public lands State of the Union. So... Um, I'm really excited to welcome Christine Peterson, yeah. professional journalist, to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for a kind introduction. Well, for having me uh, here. Yeah, a, a, as you know, I'm uh, I've trolled you in a very positive way <laughs> um, in Instagram for a long time. I I love your Instagram feed, which folks can can look at. Uh, she will roam, and we're going to talk she dot uh, will dot roam. Correct. Yeah. Um, in, I don't know whether or not this is intentional or, you know, your way of kind of capturing your life, but it's super engaging and, and I want to talk a little bit about that, but, um, let's start with your background because one of the things that anybody that's looking at your Instagram feed will notice, um, real quickly is you spend a lot of time outdoors, a lot of time with a yellow Labrador in yeah. a family, and you're holding roosters and birds. Yeah. So, where'd you grow up, and, and what's your what's your background in uh, in bird hunting? Yeah, I thanks. I um, grew up in Casper, Wyoming, so central Wyoming, and I did not grow up hunting. I did grow up in the outdoors, so we camped and hiked and backpacked and mountain biked, but all the non-consumptive side mm. of the outdoors. My parents didn't hunt. Um, And then I met my husband, Josh, in college, and he came, he's also a Wyoming boy, and and he came from a pretty strong hunting background. And so then we spent a lot of time, me going along. And I, I mean, I I came from the first, the first time he shot a deer, we were, we were living pretty far away from each other and talking on MSN Messenger (laughs) at the time, (laughs) and we were chatting, and he said that he killed a deer and I said you're a Bambi killer and I closed my computer Mm. and that and that was that and And were you studying journalism at the time no I had I had graduated okay then yeah um so we were just out of college but um but yeah that was I I hadn't honestly I had just hadn't thought about hunting okay all that much and 
And then I, I thought about my reaction. I was like, well, that's, you're not a vegetarian, Christy. <laughs> so, so how are, where, where are these thoughts coming from? And so then my uh, journey into hunting just evolved from there. I became a journalist and I got a job at the Casper Star Tribune as their outdoor reporter. So I was professionally covering mm-hmm. hunting a lot and still had not picked up a gun and still hadn't gone. I mean, I went, I went hunting a lot. I helped carry elk out of the woods. That was all we ate. We went bird hunting. We got a Labrador's. We had a bird dog. I helped train him and I still just hadn't, I still just hadn't hunted yet. And then when our lab was a year, so it was his first season as a, he was maybe a year and change. And I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to carry a gun. Hmm. I might not shoot it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd, I'd had hunter safety. And so I, and I had now at this point watched this go on for years and had thought about it and had written about it and talked to biologists. And I live in my head a lot. <laughs> um, and so we were out in a walk-in, walk-in area outside Torrington, Wyoming, in the eastern side of the state. And, uh, and I had my gun and, and I'd been out before then, then with the gun at that point and I hadn't shot at anything yet but I was like I'm just gonna practice I'll just put it up and see and and our lab flushed a bird and I put my gun up and Josh yelled Christine shoot and I was like uh Christine shoot Christine shoot <laughs> I was like okay and I shot and the bird dropped I was like what <laughs> so you hit a bird with your very first I shot did, ever yeah that never happens no, you know <laughs> it was wild <laughs> I was like, okay, 100% luck, because then I went a while before I actually got something down with a shot after that. But yes, I do think, I think I was as surprised as mm. the dog was, as my husband. We were all very surprised. And so we got a, a picture of the young dog and the young hunter. And, and then after that, it was just a really logical progression through well, that. So what was that emotion? I mean, you're, it sounds like you're in the field not really expecting to shoot. Right. You're experiencing the walk. You, you clearly enjoy the the time in the field with the, with your husband and young yep. pup and I'm sure the scenery. Yep. And prompted a couple times, Christine, shoot. Yeah. And the bird falls. How, what do you feel? I mean, mostly complete and total disbelief. <laughs> I was like, I just couldn't believe that I would was successful, that mm. I had done it that this was this thing that I had rehearsed in my mind for so long. And then it was, and then we, you know, Tuco, our Labrador, he went, got it and brought it back. And, and pheasants are just, they're just such beautiful birds. Mm, they're mm-hmm. so colorful. And, and I, uh, um, yeah, I was just, I was proud of myself, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. And thought, so, okay, I can do this. So as a person, as you mentioned early, like having those feelings about Bambi killer. Right. Was there any regret or was it more sense of accomplishment and um, you, you've come a long ways in your thought process and things yeah. have changed? Yeah, no, I mean, I had, I mean, I think there's, and this is a, this could be a long conversation that hopefully lots of people are having of, of sort of why they hunt and the emotions that they feel around hunting. And I don't know that I was, I don't know that I was super excited that I took a life Mm -hmm. like that is still something that I struggle with Mm -hmm. for sure but I did it was it gave me that connection 
to food, like mm-hmm. Hank Shad, our keynote talked about last night about food and connecting with hunting through food. I thought, okay, this is, I, I can do this now. Now I'm going to eat this. Mm-hmm. And now I have sort of completed that cycle mm-hmm. of getting food. So Hank Shaw was the keynote speaker last night. Hank was on a very recent podcast talking about drumstick diplomacy, yep, which, exactly. he, which was his keynote theme. And it talked about how many folks like you, like Hank, have come into hunting in the last couple of decades because of the food. It's the, the yeah. Aldo Leopold Sand County Almanac. Chicken isn't from a styrofoam package in the grocery right. store. Were you yeah. familiar with kind of that Leopold thought process or what, what got you interested in the food connection? Or was it more just natural, like, hey, I eat beef and I didn't kill it. And here's something that is a little bit more connected to land. Like, what, what was it for you? Yeah, it was, um, I mean, partly it was that hunting was clearly such a part of my husband's life Mm. and we weren't going to have separate lives. Mm. Like I wasn't, somebody told me, oh, you're going to be a deer widow. It's like, excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's not how, that's not how this is going to go. So I'm going to be part of this world, which is going to require me to think about it a lot. And then I think it helped also because I reported, started reporting Mm -hmm. so much on hunting and understanding systems and understanding that, you know, we are a predator on the landscape Mm -hmm. and we are a part of, we are a part of the land. And so then hunting is just this natural piece of how we be part of our land. Uh, So you you talk about being an outdoors reporter for the Casper newspaper. Correct. Um, how, How did you get that job? Like as an outdoor reporter, not did you study? I'm assuming you study journalism. Did you have environmental um, component to it? Like, what was the lead in to get getting an outdoor um, reporter job in Casper? Yeah, luck. <laughs> um, no, I so I actually I studied political science and economics. Okay, well, but I had that's not unheard of for yeah, going into yep, German. No, I think or, there's we're journalism. pretty split, right? Mm-hmm. There's either English and political science or journalism, right? Um, and but I started working because I'm from Casper and the Star Tribune is the statewide newspaper, and they ran a kids page when I was 16 that I was in charge of editing. And really? collecting kids' stuff and putting in the newspaper. And I think I got paid $100 a week for it. And it was fantastic money when I was 16. Um, so I had a connection to the paper. And then I interned for them when I was in college. And I was their city government reporter for two years okay. before um, leaving. And then working at a fishing lodge in Alaska for a while and traveling around. And then the outdoor features job came up. And I was friends with the editor. And she called and said, hey you want this? And so that was how it, yeah. So, I mean, I fell into it, which is kind of wild because it's such a part of my identity Mm -hmm. and I couldn't imagine my life without that anymore. Um, but it was 11 years, 11, 12 years ago now. So, and now, I mean, you're, you're president and board chair for the outdoor writers association of America, right? You know, not just, you know, going from a outdoor reporter and a one paper, yeah. You know, you, so let's put that hat on for a second because yeah. I'm particularly interested, right? I work with outdoor journalists and, yeah. you know, I think about we're in Omaha at this convention center in 2022. 
the very first time this event was in Omaha was 2005. Okay. And we were, this was the first event this center ever held was Pheasant Fest oh, in wow. 2005. We opened okay. this event or event center for the city. Nice. And um, I, I remember, so on, on one hand, it was a, a splashy thing that all the TV stations and, and newspapers came. And across the hallway from us, the press room was jamming. And this was 2005, so it's not like an entire generation ago, right? Yeah. But the whole world of outdoor reporting has changed dramatically. There, David Hendy who, um, was here yesterday, the former outdoor reporter for the Omaha World Herald, retired. They did not replace him. Julie Probasco Sowers, the outdoor reporter for the Des Moines Register, she no longer is reporting the outdoors for Des Moines. They did not replace her. And you can go down the list. And this event is a microcosm. You know, when, when that, this event went to Des Moines, we were on the front page for opening day. And then there was a story every single day about from the outdoors reporter about conservation and habitat and the locavore movement, how people are going back to the land to find their food and that's bringing new people to hunting. And it, it created, Pheasant Fest created a platform and newspapers and radio stations and television, television stations to tell the story of conservation and the linkage. But it all started with the outdoor newspaper reporter because every radio station in America, they sit down at 4 a.m. Yep. and read the newspaper to figure out what the talker of the day is. And every news desk of a television station in America does the same thing. Like, okay, we get our morning television news. Let's read the Omaha World Herald and let's figure out what's happening today. So the whole string started with the outdoors reporter and they started getting not replaced, let go. And it's made... This event, a challenge to market, but largely, and I'm asking the lo world's longest-winded question, <laughs> right? But you see where I'm going. Yeah. The, the, the things that we all care about as hunters, as anglers, as conservationists, um, without the outdoor reporter, it becomes increasingly difficult to get an audience to tell that story of what hunters and anglers are doing for planet Earth in a time when people seem to be caring more and more about planet Earth, climate resiliency, carbon sequestration, water quality, soil health. So this, again, the longest winded question in the history of podcasts. What, what do you see from outdoor um, journalists? Like, what, can that change? Um, how do we, as a community, tell our story in the absence of the newspaper reporter like you once were? in Casper what how do we how do we change how do we evolve yeah that is um that is a tough one um newspapers are in a newspapers are in a rough place and um and you're right I mean the number of the number of traditional outdoor reporters has dropped dramatically mm -hmm. um at, at news at newspapers particularly but I also think there are so many other places to share news and to share information, which can be tricky because at least at newspapers, there was often a fair bit of vetting, you mm -hmm. know, so you could, you could be more assured that what you were getting was fair and more balanced 
than sometimes just the incredible volume of information that you find on the internet. Yeah. Um, but I do think that um, this isn't going to be a great answer for you. I don't think probably, but um, when I start to really mourn the loss of newspapers and wonder what the future is, and I can't help but remind myself that, that humans created newspapers, humans created mm -hmm. the need for news. We've been telling stories mm -hmm. since the beginning of time. You know, we have been writing down stories in some form for millennia. Yeah. And so I think that, that this is a period of transition and it's particularly difficult because there are so many big critical issues going on. Mm. And so we are feeling, we are feeling it a lot right now and we're living through the transition mm -hmm. but I do think that there's there's an increasing number of interesting nonprofit news sites mm -hmm. that are popping up that are really very good and and well funded and growing and successful and and newspapers are still around um, and I think some of it is reaching out and educating other reporters that are out there mm -hmm. so even if there isn't an outdoor reporter but helping them understand yeah you know, how this is important, which is, which also brings more people in, yeah. which is good. I think that's a great point. Other reporters, because in an event like this, you know, we've learned we should be talking to the business reporter, Correct. economic yep. impact of an event like this in a city of Omaha. Yep. We should be talking to the ag reporter. Yep. Uh, we're a conservation organization that intersects with the agriculture community and sustainability. There's a big story to tell to a different reporter, right? right. There's, a lot of environmental reporters still around. Yep. They might not yep. have a hunting or fishing bent, yep. but at least they generally know kind of the angle there, and you can talk to them about the connection. Yep. So uh, the food writer, right, yep. and connecting folks like Hank Shaw and yep. why wild foods are linked to the to the land. So I think that's a wonderful um, one way of doing it. The other thing is I think you're doing it um, through She Will Roam. Oh. You know what, and you said, um, you're, so I'm talking about your Instagram account, and you said the volume of things on the internet, right? You have mm -hmm. to sift through, and you're right. You know, we live in a world of fake news, but if folks do sift through the time to find really credible, educated people with, like you, for instance president and chair of outdoor writers association should be following you on instagram because you do offer that credibility to pull people into the outdoors in a very authentic way the other thing is podcasts just like this yep, right storytelling yep. you know and, and again anybody can do a podcast these days but if you sift through and sort of figure out you know the authentic, legit, like what their yeah. background is and is does it match what you're interested in, that's another way. But I do, you're right, we're in a time of transition and I do really mourn the loss yes. of the outdoor reporter. And I, lo I, I still am a person that likes to read a fiscal, physical Sunday morning paper. Yeah. Um, I don't get it delivered every um, day, but I still like the Sunday morning with the, with the breakfast, right? Yeah. Um, and I mourn the loss of the outdoor reporter being the watchdog for hunting, fishing, conservation, the environment. Um, but it, it, like you said, it was created by people and we're driving different ways there. Yeah. And 
there's lots of different ways it's going to evolve, and, and I think you're part of the solution, whether or not <laughs> not to put any pressure yeah, on you. No, it, I mean, and we are not we are not dead and gone no. either. The outdoor reporter, um, some some of it just looks just looks different. I mean, I left I left the Star Tribune, so I was their full time outdoor reporter um, for eight years, and then um, and was their managing editor for some of that time. But I left almost four years ago, but I still write for them. Mm -hmm. I'm putting together a special section for them this summer, and I had been writing their Sunday outdoor section still for years after that, just as a freelancer, and still keeping tabs on what's going on. And, and so I do think that, that we're, not, we're not dead and gone either. Yeah. I mean, That's the true. Outdoor Writers Association's, you know, got six, 700 members. So it's, there's still a lot of people out there keeping track and paying attention. It just sometimes ends up looking different than that is there traditional a paper. Um, percentage changed of newspaper versus radio versus television versus internet-based um, yeah. members? Yes, I'm certain there is. What those numbers are, I don't know off the top of my head, but yes. I mean, yeah, every, changing. Yeah, I mean, as if we, especially if we look back 30 years or so when, you know, every town, lots of towns had two papers. Right. Each one had a full-time outdoor mm -hmm. reporter, so so that has certainly that has certainly changed. Yeah, I've mentioned a couple times your Instagram account. Yeah. You probably never talked about your Instagram account as much no, as you have you with make me. me. <laughs> you make me sound like an influencer. I am not. Well, <laughs> you should be more so than a lot of people. I and so I, I won't put any more words in your mouth about my perceptions of your Instagram feed. You tell us your your thoughts behind your own Instagram feed, she.will.roam. Yeah, I uh, um, I mean, I started it partly just because the reporter is supposed to have social media, a social <laughs> media presence. I was like, okay. Um, and it's picture-based, and I like taking pictures. And um, and so I, and I, it was a way, it started just like as an, as an easy way to share some of the outdoor stuff that we did. And, and I also felt like, I didn't know I didn't know many hunters growing up and I had a stereotype of who hunters were mm. and and who fishermen were to some anglers were to some degree in my head and then as I got to know a lot of hunters and anglers and thought well that's not at all the image that I had in my head and so people need to do a better job of outreach right and showing what their lives are like and so I mean I just um I put uh, I put stories out there before I had Miriam and then once I had Miriam is my daughter who's five now five and a half she's a delightful age um <laughs> but she once I had her then it became even more important to me to put stories out there of us outside so that people could see that it was not as hard as it sounds because mm -hmm. that even in a state like Wyoming where an awful lot of people go outside because what else are you gonna do mm -hmm. um we still heard so much from people. Oh, you're not you're not going to do that when you have kids. Oh, mm -hmm. you're not going to do that when you have kids. You're not going to backpack or not going to elk hunt or you're not going to um, camp as much as you do. And and I'm not going to say that it's that it's exactly the same. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't fish the Wind River in February for eight hours a day like we did before she was born. But we still fish the Wind River in February in Wyoming, and we might you know 
Josh might go for a couple hours while I read and hang out with Miriam in the truck, and then we might switch places. And if the weather's fine, then we all go down there. Mm. And by fine, I mean like 25 degrees instead of 10 degrees or something, mm. right? And then we play on the ice and look around, and she throws a fishing pole in. And um, so I, I, it became important to me that people could see what it looks like for a family to be outside. Mm-hmm. They could see that going elk hunting with a little kid isn't that big a deal that you know we camp and she and I have a grand time mm-hmm. and I bring my shotgun and she and the dog and I go and look for grouse and Josh goes elsewhere obviously and looks for elk and it's <laughs> and it's just this very it's a very easy way to be outside and so I I try to help people come along with us so that if there are moms out there or dads out there or grandparents or neighbors or whoever and they can think like oh okay i mean it, it mm-hmm. looks it looks that looks doable and it looks fun mm-hmm. so maybe i should give it a go mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of your posts are written dear miriam yeah so is there a is there a journaling perspective that you're hoping does she read it or do you are you hoping she reads it sometime down the road or what's yeah. that perspective for you yeah, I don't, um, I fear that a little bit because I don't know, <laughs> like, man, I, I don't know what you're going to think about this when you get older. Um, sometimes I read them to her. Sometimes I don't. It's a little funny with her because she is blissfully unaware of what anyone else thinks at any given time, which mm-hmm. is great. I mean, she dresses herself and she camps and plays in frozen dresses in the woods and she does just does not care Mm. and I think because she's been in magazines for most of her life because I write about our lives together I I opened up I think an issue of trout magazine a a year ago or so and there was a a story that I'd written about this five-week road trip that she and Josh and I did to Alaska and and I was like, oh, Miriam, here you are. And she looked at it and she's like, yeah, okay. And she just <laughs> wanted me to read her book. <laughs> uh-huh. And so it, I don't know how she's, as she gets older, I don't know how she's going to feel about it. Mm-hmm. But I do write them for myself to mm-hmm. some degree because those memories as they just, they go so fast. This time goes so fast and mm-hmm. it's so easy to forget the details Mm -hmm. and it's easy to forget the experiences. And so I want to write them down for myself and, and for her, I want her to have a record of the stuff that she did growing Mm -hmm. up. So is she, is she like to fish? She does. Yeah, Yeah. no, she does. Um, She has, she has outfished her dad and I before, (laughs) um, which she's like, she can throw shade (laughs) (laughs) at five and a half. Yeah. We were ice fishing and she caught two and Josh and I each caught one and she just periodically in the truck on the way back. Hey dad, how many fish you catch? (laughs) One. I caught two. I caught more than you, dad. (laughs) It's like, Ooh man, you're good at that. (laughs) Do you, do you perceive that she's going to want to hunt? I don't know. Um, that is a, that's a, that's a tough one. I don't know if she is, I don't know if she's going to, or not. I do think right now, if you asked her right now, if she wants to hunt, she will say mm-hmm. yes. Um, I think as a parent, do you have kids? Uh, I don't know. Um, I have as, dogs. Yes. So, I mean, it's hard to know what they're going to 
be sure. when sure. they when they grow up. Um, and I've talked about this. I I desperately want her to love and appreciate the outdoors. Mm. And what form that comes in is kind of up to her, sure. right? But I mean, she did. Um, she was with me on both both antelope hunts. I mean, she's been with me on a lot of antelope hunts. But the the last two antelope that I shot, um, and I was a little nervous about how she would feel about the blood and if mm. that would be, you know, she, the first time she was three, the second time she was four. Is this going to be, it's going to be upsetting or there mm-hmm. going to be nightmares about this? Like death is a hard concept. For sure. It didn't seem to bother her at all. We talked about, you know, we answered her questions and talked about what was going on. And, um, probably a week later we were driving, um, somewhere and we hadn't really been talking then. And she pipes up, Hey mom, when can I shoot my first antelope? Hmm. I was like, oh, I, not now, <laughs> but, but you know, some in, in some years. And she thought for a minute, she said, is it because I'm too little to have a gun? It's like, well, yes, you're four. Hmm. So you're not going <laughs> to be, shoot, you're not going to be shooting a rifle right now. Right. Um, but, but yeah, she is very interested in it. And I think we'll, we will certainly, she'll go through hunter safety and and we'll sort of let her my husband is a teacher and so i generally just do whatever he does because he's the trained professional mm. um but we will let her take the lead on that if she's interested and, and you have a pop tuco yes. you mentioned yes what's the connection with tuco and miriam in the field is she does miriam oh. enjoy that aspect yes. of it they are best friends mm. Yes, he based is, on the photos you showed in the presentation. Yes. That's why I asked the question. Yeah. Yeah, no. He is her best friend and she is I don't know what she is to him. He's such a funny grumpy old man. He, <laughs> he uh, was um when she was born, um we sent for the first month she was in the, in the NICU and so he went and stayed with my in-laws mm. and he and he was 4 years old then and he came home with a completely white face it was like he had had wow. aged somehow and i just thought maybe he'd been outside a lot and it had just bleached from the sun but he has been gray since then wow which was sort of wild it made him look really old and then we brought this baby home and he was clearly like what how what right. fresh hell did you bring into right. this house right people <laughs> my world changed yeah but he has slept next to her bed every night wow. since we brought her home and so he goes downstairs all grumpy and sulky every night and goes and curls up in her room with her next to her bed and so he they are they are the best of friends and it is having a dog in the field with a kid is really helpful because she loves, she loves watching him and she's now she yells at him like we do. If we, you know, if it's like Tuco heel, she'll yell that back to him too. And he does not (laughs) listen to her categorically will not listen to anything she says, which is also kind of hilarious. (laughs) Um, But yes, they are the, they are the best of friends. And you leave from Pheasant Fest in Omaha to where? Idaho. So I'm going to go home to Laramie, Wyoming. And tonight, tomorrow morning at six, Miriam and I are packing up and we're driving to Idaho Falls to get a puppy. (laughs) And what's Miriam's Uh, level of excitement? Oh, it's so high. It is (laughs) so high. She is very, I don't even know. 
I think she's excited that I'm coming home mostly. <laughs> she is just excited that we are going to get the puppy. But yeah, it'll be a it'll be an interesting experience um, because she is old enough to understand now that we've, you know, we sat down as a family before we got him and set some started talking about rules mm. and how it was going to go and things that we could do and things we couldn't do with a puppy and she is being very adult about it hmm. and she is very excited. So, yes. And another Labrador? Yes. Yep. Another yellow male. And does Miriam or you have a name picked out? We do, I think. Um, I think we're going to name him Finn. Oh, and cool. Maris. <laughs> so Miriam can call him Funny Finny. <laughs> <laughs> she wanted... She At least she has a reason. Yeah, right. <laughs> she, um, a friend of mine said that <laughs> recently that... Two-year-olds are hilarious because when you walk around, they look like miniature drunk people. Like, that's how they walk. And talking to a five-year-old is talking to a really stoned friend. <laughs> and she is her stream of conscious. We're talking about names. And she's like, I want to name him Snow. Like, well, I mean, that's a interesting option. Mm. And she thought for a minute. She said, well, I can't name him. We can't. Maybe we shouldn't name him Snow Mom because there's a lot of snow outside. And so then if we're talking about snow, he's going to hear his name and then he's going to be confused while we talk about snow. And he's hearing snow and he's thinking in his name. And that's why we can't name him Flowers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I guess we can't name him Flowers either, Mom. Go, okay. Well, that's. I'm glad that we've crossed that option off the list. <laughs> so funny, Finny. Yes. So funny. So funny, Finny. It is. We'll see. Yeah. Well, that's fun. I I really enjoyed um, seeing the photos in the presentation. But for folks, uh, definitely take a look at she will roam for fun photos of Miriam growing up. Yeah, and cool. some uh, some puppy photo bombing soon. There you so go. Yes. If you need puppy pictures, it's a place to go. Um, transitioning to put on your reporter hat for a while. Mm -hmm. As you look out 2022 and the years ahead, you know, what, what are some of the things that... So our, our audience, Pheasants Forever members, Quail Forever members, bird hunters, and conservationists, dog lovers... Um, what should they have on their radar in, in, say, the year ahead for things that are going to impact their passions? What, what would you tell them to watch as an um, outdoor reporter? Um, I mean, I think there are some topics that I'm sure that you've covered and have been covered here. The uh, Grasslands Act mm. that's going through the Great American Outdoors Act, where there's a lot, the infrastructure bill, there's a lot of money out there to be spent and so we, there is some degree of needing to keep track of that and and if there are ideas for how it should be spent make sure that it's being done in a purposeful way and being targeted at projects that will help habitat um i, mean, I do think the biggest the biggest issues are still it's climate change and invasive species and habitat loss mm -hmm. and so constantly making sure that we are protecting conserving what remains mm. of some of these wild lands because it is it goes fast and it's very easy to blink and have it be gone um public lands you yeah. you moderated the, the public land state of the union yesterday with mm -hmm. uh president and ceos backcountry hunters and anglers um 
uh, Rough Grouse Society, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, and our organization, as you think about that conversation and the preparation you did, yeah. um, what, what would you tell folks to look for on the public lands front? Um, BHA has elevated kind of a, um, the concern for access or taking away access very yeah. well. Our organization loves to find that sweet spot of being able to create public access through land acquisition, but also walk-in programs on private yeah. land. Um, what, what are some of the things that um, you'd point to for people to pay attention to on public lands? I mean, I think this, the landlocked public land issue is one, um, and, and access, but I also think that being, and this, and it gets hard because it gets wonky, but being involved in like these, in the larger land management plans that mm. are going on for big chunks of BLM land or forest revision right. plans, because those are set. And once they're done, they're set for 20, 30 years. And that's how all of the biologists and all the managers within a forest or within BLM, then anything that they do, any decision they make goes through that plan. So what's in there, the priorities that are set there, all projects that they're going to work on have to fall under those priorities. Mm -hmm. So it's important to get in on those processes, even if they are boring and complicated, mm -hmm. <laughs> but to be sure that wildlife have a priority mm -hmm. in those. Because for a long time, wildlife didn't have a priority at all. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to, to go and be sure that your voice, go to those public meetings, be sure that you're saying, hey, no, it's, Im it's important we have bird habitat. It is important that we're prioritizing big game migrations and right. connected lands. Yeah, that's a really good point. As particularly think about like BLM lands as you head west, you yeah. know, it's you think about the value that they potentially could have, right, for right. sage grouse or western quail species, but it, like inertia Yep. And government lands is an extremely powerful thing. Yeah. And being on the front end where possible, yep. or like you say, show up for the yeah. the uh, planning process, can yep. have a not only a short-term impact, but could last for a long time in helping create habitat on some of those properties. For sure. Um, you live in Wyoming. There's yep. a... Um, issue called corner crossing yeah. is that something that you're paying um, close attention to as a person living in wyoming yeah it is um so for anyone listening who's not familiar with corner crossing uh wyoming the west is full of what's called checkerboard which is exactly as it sounds and so there are two pieces of there are you know, four pieces of land then a square um and caddy corner are private and on the other sides are private are public and so technically you can step from a piece of public to another piece of public without touching private land you know your foot can fall stay in public on both those both those sides but your your body goes through the airspace mm -hmm. of this private land and um and it has become a really big issue in the west because landowners have gotten used to those public parcels essentially being a part of their land which it is i mean you're not going to graze cows right. only on those private on your private pieces and get them to weirdly walk through these corners right and so then that so then it has allowed really big ranches to block off tens of thousands of acres mm. because you can't cross that corner 
to get there. And it's, um, and it has now is, is now boiling up again. There were some out of state, um, hunters who came and they did their research. They wanted to get to a certain parcel of land and, um, they brought a contraption that allowed them to cross from public to public. And, uh, and the, the, they ended up being cited by the sheriff, and now that's sort of working its way through the county prosecutor system. Um, and it's raising a lot of awareness of this issue, mm-hmm. and it's a and it's a it's a messy one. There isn't actually settled law on it in Wyoming. If it is or isn't, it is not legal, sort of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's kind of up to the county. Um, but it does make it, it makes it tricky. There have certainly, there have been plenty of times, especially turkey hunting, that we have been out and we've heard, you know, heard a Tom call and looked at our GPS and thought, well, whether there's no, we can't, you know, it's public, turkey's on public land, but we can't get there because there is this corner. Well, do we cross the corner? I'm not crossing the corner. Mm-hmm. I'm, like, I'm not going to get a ticket for <laughs> trespassing right, right. and then have to write about myself for getting a ticket. Um, <laughs> but it is, I mean, that's a big, there's a lot of land that's public that is inaccessible right. because of that. Yeah. Like it's, it's become a bubbling issue. Uh, yeah. lar- I mean, Meat Eater has written about it in, in, uh, you know, outdoor life. I mean, it's, it's yep. all over and it's a big deal because of the potential precedent that's set legally one way or the other that will affect landlock. I mean, I don't even know the millions of acres of landlock numbers for public land that are out there. So it's something that um, our organization is paying attention to and everybody okay. should be, yeah. be paying attention to. Um, Wyoming real quick is I, mm-hmm. is I'm, I haven't spent hardly any time in Wyoming. Mm. I'm addicted to the Longmire books. I've read them all. Oh, I don't know if you've read yeah. Longmire. And yeah. I've read all the C.J. Box, yeah. um, Joe Pickett mm-hmm. novels. So it, you know how books get you into a sense of place. For sure. I, Wyoming is a place that I need to visit. And yeah. I also, you know, we've done podcasts with uh, Sage Grouse Initiative folks. We're mm-hmm. really connected uh, with, with SGI and um it's the sage grouse capital of the country yeah and for sure everybody you talk to is like you just keep wyoming on the down low oh. it's one of the better bird hunting states yeah. that nobody knows about yeah. as as a person that lives and hunts in wyoming yeah. um is that true a lot of bird hunting opportunities yeah there are it is i mean we are not for pheasants we are not south dakota sure. um right and but we have they have really pretty good chucker populations. I've done started doing a lot more chucker hunting. It's a December January pursuit, which is which is fun, um, and you know a number of grouse species. And as you say, they're sage grouse, which is a a unique one. Mm-hmm. The season's very short, mm-hmm. and populations are really struggling. Um, but yes, it is a it is a great the I, we have found the only trial which you can hear my privilege in this is that there's too many fun things to hunt in Wyoming <laughs> and there's not enough time <laughs> and so then it's starting to to having to prioritize what you're going to do with your weekend mm-hmm. um, because there are so many great options yeah and you you grew up there you, mm-hmm. so it sounds like the only time you left was uh, going to Alaska for a little while yeah I left I um I lived in Honduras for a couple of years. I lived in Central oh, America wow. for a couple of years after college. But yes, otherwise had a couple, three years 
off and on in there that and came home to Wyoming. Yep, I keep just keep coming home to Wyoming. Yeah, no, that's um, I like most. I went to the University of Wyoming, and probably like most kids from rural areas, think I am leaving and I am never coming back. Sure. And you know, I kept coming back, and now we are very rooted. I can't imagine a life any anywhere else. Any closing thoughts that uh, you want the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever audience to think about, whether it's taking their, their families outdoors or from environmental report? That the, the palette is clear, so grab the paintbrush and tell us what you'd like to say. Yeah, I think be aware of what is going on. I do think that, that apathy is, is an issue that um, mm-hmm. the outdoors is suffering from. Um, but I think the first, the first thing that is most important is to go outside and have a good time mm. and enjoy and see the wonder that is out there and then come back and call your legislator or your representative or sign up for email blasts for organizations like this and, and other conservation organizations. And, and as, as Howard, the CEO said yesterday on that panel, that when there is an action alert, Mm. you know, read it. And I'm not going to tell you to do it because I'm a journalist. I won't tell you what to do, but you know, read it and see if that aligns with your values and then take action. Yeah. And, and I think that, so go outside, have fun, enjoy what is there Mm. and then take some steps to make sure that your kids got that too and go to instagram and follow christine peterson at she.will.rome um i really enjoy it i really enjoyed the conversation thanks for coming all the way to nebraska and giving presentations on the stage and doing this podcast it's been really nice getting to know you better yeah same thank you i appreciate it All right, folks, Uh, thank you for listening uh, to this episode of On the Wing Podcast. For Christine Peterson, I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thank you.